Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It was Sunday, the 31st of August, 1997, and Phil Economides was at Seagulls Stadium watching the Group 18 Grand Final, a day after his Gold Coast had gone down 28-6 to Illawarra. It was a case of so near yet so far for a team looking to make the Gold Coast first semi-finals appearance, with the Western Suburbs Magpies only needing to beat the last place crushers to secure their spot in the top seven and end the Chargers' season. Suddenly, Economides got the report from the radio. The crushers, playing in what would turn out to be their last ever match, had got the win, and the Chargers were going to the finals. This is part two of It's My Game, the 37th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Man, I'm great. How are you? Good. Almost forgot your name there, but <laughs> recovered just in time. Wouldn't be the first, mate. Uh, yeah, you'd think after 100 episodes or whatever, I'd have it down, but <laughs> here we are. Um, back for part two of our 1997 ARL season recap. A lot of incredibly funny stories from part one. Uh, part two, we're going to be looking more at on-field action. I just wanted to ask you at the start, like I know you being more of a Super League guy, you're probably reading about a lot of these things for the first time. Was there anything that kind of surprised you or struck you as odd about this ARL season? Well, you know what? I actually regret not watching it now. It's got some very interesting wrinkles in it and not least the Phil Economides Gold Coast Chargers story, which is awesome. Yeah. So I kind of regret not getting more involved in it now. I think after having, you know, put these two recaps together, the Super League season and the ARL season, there's definitely quite a few more wrinkles in the ARL season and a few ups and downs and surprising stories and things that could have gone a different way, whereas Super League, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion from the start. It's a microcosm of any real war. There's all these sorts of little sidelines and different tangents and stuff. It's all amazing stuff, really. Yeah. I had a lot of surprises, even though I was watching it at the time, a lot of things that passed me by back in 1997. So we'll get into all of it in this episode. So just to give you a little breakdown of what you have in store for the next hour or so, in part two, we're going to be going through each team in the ARL competition and have a look at how their season progressed. And it's going to be a speed run in some cases. I'm I'm not, you know, digging through looking for interesting stories when none present themselves to me immediately. So like our Super League recap, there's a bit of imbalance on how much time we give one club compared to another club. But that's what we'll be doing in this episode. And then for part three, we'll be going through and looking at the semi-final series. I like how your approach to the season is like the fans' approach to watching it. Yeah, yeah. So a team that not many fans were watching at all were the uh, South Queensland Crushers, who were wooden spooners, and their issues ran far beyond their on-field performance. 
So we're going to be covering the crushes in a separate chapter. The wooden spoon would turn out to be the least of their worries. Similarly, in second last were Souths, who, as we talked about at the back end of part one of this chapter, they were in a real mess as well, and the inevitable was coming just a few seasons away based on their chronic underperforming and lack of any money. So we're going to skip right over our last two places and talk a bit about the Dragons, which was a very disappointing season after making the grand final in 1996. And just reading through these notes and thinking back to the season made me think about how unsophisticated I was as a football fan in 1997. So... The Dragons, we lose. Anthony Mundine goes to Super League. Noel Goldthorpe playing at the Hunter Mariners. David Barnhill, Scott Gourlay go to the Roosters. Troy Stones playing at uh, the Mariners, I think he went to. So we've lost all these players. We go from Goldthorpe and Mundine in the halves to combinations of Ben Cousteau, Gavin Clinch, Shane Kenwood, Steve Price. So all this happens, and at the time, all I remember thinking is, we made the grand final last year. Why are we shit now? Like, it it just... (laughs) It was like the playing personnel was interchangeable, and it's like, well, we made a grand final, so we should be a good team still. I do like the fact that Dragons fans have got that, even adult Dragons fans have got that sort of, but we're the Dragons. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what is worse, like having this misplaced sense of entitlement or just going into every season with the attitude that you're a shit club that's going to come last or near the bottom? (laughs) So it was a real gap in experience and in playing stock. Mark Coyne, as captain, was particularly upset by David Barnhill going. He said, losing David hurt me badly. Apart from being good friends, I was relying on him to be our forward leader. It was a very big disappointment. So the Dragons end up in 10th spot, and that's about all I have to say of them, really. It was a bad year, but now looking back at it, it's like, yeah, of course we were going to struggle. It wasn't going to be a good year. A team who can really point to this year as being a disappointing season is Wests, who had made their finals appearance in 1996, were running back with much the same squad, and with the buzz around Tommy Radonikus's coaching and you know his elevation to country and New South Wales coach as well, there was a buzz among West and a buzz among their fans that this was a season where they could capitalise on the promise of the year before, especially playing in half a comp. Uh, As it turns out, they miss the finals. They end up the season 10 and 12, half a game out of the finals. So it's disappointing they miss out, but at the same time, there's an argument for running that team back for 1998, trying to add some talent in. You had players like Brett Hodgson emerging. He still had, you know, an international like Harvey Howard. So it wasn't like it was a disaster or something that needed to be completely rethought. But as it turns out, they go a different way. They gave the Crushers a win in their last game to miss the finals themselves, which seems to have been a catalyst. So in the Rugby League week after that Crushers loss, Demir Gavorchin wrote, In the aftermath of their capitulation at the hands of South Queensland last Sunday, a distraught Radonikus slammed several players for not aiming up and said they won't be at Campbelltown in 1998. And so this loss, I don't know if Tommy was already thinking this beforehand, but certainly after this loss, it was a real catalyst for change. And it was soon after announced that up to 19 players in the first and reserve grade squads 
were being cut, uh, you know, in some cases mid-contract and a full clean-out was in process. I've come back and forth on, you know, is he a good coach, is he not, Tommy Renekis? I still think my original thought that he's good for an Origin series to get you fired up, but he hasn't got the nous for a, a full NRL season. Yeah. In my notes, I wrote, you can only drop so many buckets of ox hearts on the dressing room floor before it loses its impact. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it's also, he's a pure rugby league man, probably the embodiment of it. And that is about making rash, knee-jerk statements like sacking 19 blokes while they're under contract, that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is quite extraordinary when you think about it, just that after they announced it, Jason Alchin, who was the reserve grade coach, who was also sacked, he was considering legal action you had all these players under contract. So the Players Union Secretary, Peter Moscat, predictably came out in the media to rail against the decision and suggested it may cost Wes up to $300,000 in payouts, etc. cetera. Um, the fact that there were 13 reserve grade players, I think, made that amount a little lower than it would have been with more first grade players under contract. But yeah, just this rash, you know, not thought out, oh, I'm going to cut all these players without thinking of contracts or anything like that. But they were handing around the bucket for the fans to bail him out like six months before, it seems like. Um, yeah. And then they're just wasting money on these typical football club decisions. It's, mm. it's not a good look, mate. <laughs> no. So Tommy's rationale for the clean out was, he said, these blokes aren't going to win me a premiership. I'm going to get players here who can help me achieve that. It's a very Wally Lewis and the draft horse type comment that quite narcissistic, actually. Yeah. And I think just because it's Tommy, Tommy can get away with saying outlandish things that a lot of other coaches or players in the game, if they said it would be like, you know, headline news. But it's, oh, it's Tommy. Of course he's going to say that. So he was backed by uh, his chief executive, Martin Bullock, who was okay with the decision to clear out some dead wood. But it brought up an idea in the press that maybe. Tommy's methods were rubbing players the wrong way. So in addition to the players that were cut, Brandon Pearson also left mid-season after falling out with Tommy. Tommy's former right-hand man, Wayne Ellis, who you'll remember back to the very early days of this series where uh, Wayne Ellis was the guy that helped Tommy build West Gym out of an old squash court. <laughs> Legend. He'd left the club a couple of years earlier because Tommy thought that he was having too much input into the football side. See, that's what I mean. Is it about the club or is it about him? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that was a thought among some of the unhappy players that the origin stuff had got to his head a bit and he was having too much power in the club. So one player who wouldn't be named said, he's taken over the club. No one can tell him what to do. Uh, Shane Millard, who was one of those players sacked, said, Tommy was one of the major reasons I joined West, but a lot of people think he changed during 1997 because there was a lot more friction in the club. And just that erratic nature, everything was on a whim and things could change from one week to another. So Millard said that before that last game against the Crushers, Tommy had come up to him and said that blokes like me were needed at this club. And then two weeks later, he's one of the players that's sacked. It's that leadership style where I demand total obedience and total loyalty not via hearts and minds, via fear. Yeah, and not with a lot of direction or actual coaching. Adam Doyle said, Tommy's coaching methods are still in the 80s. If it wasn't for Des Hasler and Paul Langmack, I wouldn't have learned anything. Well, it's funny that those two, um, especially Des, didn't have him running more modern. Yeah, and in that same quote, 
Adam Doyle goes on to say that he lost respect for some of the senior players who didn't confront Tommy during the season, like didn't make a stand and say, you know, hang on, we're not getting any coaching here or we're going in the wrong direction. But there was just this fear at the club, it seems, and everyone was worried about speaking out because they'd seen it happen to Brandon Pearson and then he was on the off and it just wasn't an environment for that kind of open communication. For his part, Tommy thought that he would do what's best for West. So his quote was, I don't give a damn what people think. These blokes couldn't win me a premiership. I have the full backing from the board for my decision. It's hard putting off players, but I'm the coach and I'll do what's best for West. In Tommy's defense, those players weren't going to win him a premiership. I think he was justified there. I never think it's good leadership to publicly castigate your players like that. I mean, I guess it's one of those things where it can be, like as a motivating tactic or whatever, but that comes down to knowing the players and knowing the right time to do it. You know, I don't think it's, I'm going to say something about this player to get him fired up for next week. I think it's really bad excuse making for his failure as the head coach to say, well, it's the players, I'm getting rid of them, you know? Yeah. So this is another quote he had talking about maybe troubles within the West culture. These players were never accountable for their actions. For example, one player I cut didn't come to training one session because he told me one of his family members was sick. Instead, he went to play golf. And when the players and I went to the pub for a few drinks, he walked in blind drunk. Another player assaulted his wife at a wedding in Cootamundra and the police were called in. I had to smooth things over. These players have short memories. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, there's some bad eggs within this club. They're negatively impacting on club culture. You can say that, but when you are actively leading and encouraging the drinking culture at the club, I think you need to look at your own leadership style. He's going to pull the guy up to get blind at a wedding and carry him on. It's like, yeah. <laughs> can we have a look at your wedding record, please, Coach? <laughs> and that even extended to the end of season trip. So the cut players were refused a place on the trip and they were justifiably upset about that, thinking that they'd played all season with these guys and just wanted a nice holiday at the end of the season. Uh, Shane Millard said, The club was worried about blokes making trouble and having a go at Tommy. But who cares about Tommy? We just wanted to go and have a good time with our mates. Why is Tommy there? <laughs> that, that's a, a good question. Maybe let the players go let their hair down and you worry about next season's um, performance. Yeah. I love Tommy's quote about this. So he, again, defended the decision to leave them off the trip, saying, it was a potential powder keg if these blokes went with us to Melbourne. A lot of alcohol gets consumed on those trips away, which can lead to trouble. I wasn't prepared to take the risk of these players having a go at me and the rest of my staff. I will say, though, I'm dangerous when threatened. <laughs> I don't doubt that one bit. No. <laughs> but what sort of professional quote is that? Yeah. There's a lot of alcohol getting consumed. I'm not going to stop any of that. I'm going to participate actively and lead the charge. But if anyone yeah. has a go at me, I'm probably going to kill him. So. <laughs> I love how he has to throw that in. I'm dangerous when threatened. <laughs> like you're a 50-year-old coach of the team and, and you're out saying this. So with the cut players, Tommy was looking for vindication uh, and he thought that he would get the squad in to give him that chance at a premiership. As it turns out, they get Leo Dinova, who looked like a genius signing at the time. And we'll talk more about Leo Dinova's 1997 season when we get to Newcastle. Amazing season. But apart from that, they didn't really get the reinforcements that were going to win them a comp. 
They won 10 games in 1997. Over the rest of their career as a standalone club, so two more seasons, they only got seven combined wins, culminating in that absolutely horrific 1999 season. So it's all well and good to declare that there's players that won't win you a premiership, but if you can't bring in reinforcements that will do a better job, it makes you look pretty foolish. It wasn't a time to be sacking the lion's share of your club because there was 22 clubs around and not yeah. enough players to go around. Yeah, yeah. It was just madness in execution. Like if you have 19 replacements ready to go, then that's one thing. But just doing it on a whim and then hoping you'll get the talent to replace those players. And it says something about Tommy that despite him making this move staying on as coach and sending West into this horrific death spiral. It's just completely forgotten by West fans. It's like, oh, Tommy, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so no finals for West and their later merger partners, Balmain, uh, were also in a bit of a transition phase. But unlike West, they were on the up. So they finished eighth, narrowly missing a place in the finals And it was seen around the club and the spirit of the fans as somewhat of a rebirth. So it was an end to the Sydney Tigers experiment, an end to Parramatta Stadium. It was back to Balmain and back to Leichhardt Oval. And they also wore a heritage strip, so the horizontal black and orange stripes. That was a smart move. Even wearing a stiff white collar on the jerseys, which that's tradition going too far to me. No, I liked it. I thought it was cool. (laughs) And the fans responded to all of this in a positive way. So their first match back at Leichhardt drew 18,000 fans. They averaged over 10,000 for the first time since 1989. That was maintained into 1998 with over 10,000 as well. They fell just short of 10,000 in 1999, but it was still their third best average for the 90s. So, Can you picture the bathrooms at Leichhardt and 18,000 crowded 97? Oh, my God. With the plumbing major in the rum rebellion? Yeah. <laughs> Awful. So it was a revival on field as well with a much better season than they'd experienced in recent years. And as a sign of the times in the press, it was also talked about that they had a chance of winning the club championship. So they were doing well in reserves in the under-20s as well as first grade. The club championship used to be something to respect. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, agreed. For most of the season, they had the best defensive record. In the last round, they got pipped by Newcastle, but it was a drastic improvement on how they'd been in the seasons before. A lot of that was put down to the spirit that Wayne Pierce was bringing to the club as coach, a feeling that he'd revived that famous Tiger spirit. He had some input from his reserve grade coach, Dan Staines, who was introducing a new type of coaching, a new uh, attitude to the spiritual world. So he went as far as giving out his players dream catches. <laughs> How do you reckon that went over? I mean, coming from Dan Staines, you're not going to argue, but I mean. Well, it's funny. I think I mentioned it before when Dan Staines came and visited my school, which I think it would have been probably more 96 than 97. But he came and gave this speech about different coaching styles and he didn't hand out dream catches but there was a little woo-woo element to what he talked about which was so incongruous coming with this like hard nut like rugby league forward is it not an early celebration of pride round handing out dream catches yeah (laughs) 
Pierce himself had some help. Uh, I'm just going to read this, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Word from Leichhardt is that Wayne Pierce has a new wonder vitamin in the pipeline. Junior, who feeds his boys more herbs and vitamins than solid meals, has told the Tigers the new supplement will be available should they make the finals. He says they're like a Barocca, but he doesn't know what's in them. Apparently, it's pretty good stuff, said one Tiger. <laughs> well, but there's a lot there to talk about, mate. Um, <laughs> is Wayne Jr. Pierce a qualified pharmacist? I don't know if he is. Why is he involved in potions and stuff? I, don't I know. <laughs> and just this, like, cavalier attitude to what these players were putting in their bodies. <laughs> like, going back to our drug talk from the previous episode and going back to the long tradition of pet pills, these undisclosed pet pills that players have been taking, you know, since the fifties and probably before. Yeah. It's very rugby league all around. I'm picturing in there like Gargamel with like a big cauldron and a big wooden spoon staring it up. Come on guys, get you. But also is it not a bit like the Shane Warne mystery ball that was touted for three years? It never came out. Yeah. If we make the finals, it'll be available. So Wayne Pierce had the assistance of some old heads in the team, and those old heads were players he had played with and succeeded. So uh, Paul Sirinan was in good form. Ellery Hanley had come back for another year. Tim Brasher was still there. As we've talked about, he was a bit distracted, which may have contributed to his on-field form. But it gave them this sense of a return to the past, which the traditional jerseys and Leichhardt Oval probably helped with as well. And Glenn Morrison talked about the fact that they had an 88 call. So he said, whenever we hear it, everyone lifts. It means no one's going through our line, just like the Queenslander call. And that 88 call was uh, a reference to their run in 1988 with Ellery Hanley starring, where they came from fifth to a playoff of fifth to make the grand final. So it was a combination of old heads and some new talent coming through, the likes of Glenn Morrison, Darren Centre was emerging, they let Wes Patton go the year before, which you know caused some ruffled feathers in Balmain. And then Glenn Morrison announced mid-season that he was going to Norths, which would caused a big furor as well. So it was probably always going to be a false dawn and something they weren't going to be able to sustain. So that concludes our also rounds. Now we're going to get to our finalists for 1997, which is well the half the teams. Yeah, yeah. so if we haven't said already, seven of 12 teams made the finals and in seventh came um, just a remarkable story, which is the story of the Gold Coast Chargers. How good was that? Uh, And we have talked about the start of this story with our Gold Coast chapter, which will never be beaten for the favourite thing I've ever researched. (laughs) And in that chapter, we talked about the emergence of Phil Economides, just this steady hand and this even-keeled figure alongside the likes of Jeff Muller and alongside all this turmoil and constant drama and player turnover. In the midst of it, you had this guy who was just so calm and easygoing, and I don't know if any other coach could have got them together the way Economides did in 1997. What does it say? We've talked about this guy since the weekly podcast, how much we respect him. The guy didn't win anything. It didn't last very long. And he's remembered as one of the great coaches. Yeah. Amazing run. Yeah. And just everything about him and his style was so easy to get behind. I like his old school charm. There's a few examples of that throughout his coaching career. Uh, This is emblematic of that. This actually came during the 1998 season, but I'll read it out. 
he was talking about how they were struggling in a game against the Melbourne Storm, so he tried a new technique. He said, I waited two or three minutes before I opened the dressing room door, poked my head in and said, sorry, girls, I was looking for the charges room. I slammed the door shut and didn't go in. That one backfired on me. We were absolutely hammered in the second half. Um, During the 1997 season, he was asked if there are any positives to take away from their loss to West that week. He said, I'm positive a few of my blokes won't be there next week. Hilarious. And this one I really love when you think of Phil Economides' status as the, you know, the son of a Greek fisherman. Uh, He was asked about the fact that in that Gold Coast team, they had players from nine different countries and there was this idea of a League of Nations within the squad. To that he said, I don't want us portrayed as a bunch of wogs. The majority (laughs) of second-generation Australians are proud of it. (laughs) See, I respect that a lot. um, For our... Uh, overseas listeners, where wog is a much worse term. Uh, over here, it means Greek and Italian immigrants and has extended to Lebanese and uh, Balkans countries as well, mainly in the outer suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, it's responsible for some of the worst comedy you'll ever see. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty funny from Phil. Uh, um, what struck me about that comment is I feel it's a common trope of Men of Economides' era, and especially like guys that, you know, grew up in regional towns, this idea of downplaying their, you know, cultural heritage. Like, I feel I've met quite a few blokes in my time that have like a really Greek or Italian name, but just have this real like over-the-top awkwardness to the way they carry themselves, where it's almost a way to, you know, when they were younger to fit in, to remove any racism, they had to like overplay their Aussiness. Uh, and being of a different generation to his players, Economides was just a really good people person and a leader of that team. He earned their respect while being a bit apart from the team. So he said that he had a good report with the players. He said, I wouldn't drink with them, but we organized golf days and fishing trips together. Hardly any of them played golf when I started, but in the end, everyone was having a game. So just understanding that separation of I'm not going to go out drinking with you because I'm your coach and I need you to respect me. A different attitude than Tommy's. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But that isn't to say that he was this wet blanket who couldn't have any fun. Uh, He had the nickname Bernie after the titular character in 80s classic Weekend at Bernie's that (laughs) came from his moustache. So as a motivating tactic, uh, he said that if they won three games in a row, he'd shave off his moustache. Uh, that duly happened. So the man who, by his own estimation, was born with a moustache, lost it after three wins in a row. Uh, thankfully, they didn't win any more in a row after that because he said, I've now promised to shave another part of my body if we win another three in a row. <laughs> oh, there's something very quaint about that just in the professionalism era, you know, the old style club when there's a good vibe around and everyone's together. There's yeah. something lovely about that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny talking about this being some kind of a throwback or we're on the cusp of a professional era because when the Gold Coast was struggling for a time during the season, he broke his usual habit to suggest that maybe the turnaround or the fix needed was a night on the drink. So he wrote, (laughs) I'm convinced we have to do something different. And even though parting during the week is very much against my coaching philosophy, I'm prepared to give it a go. 25 years later, that's still the cure-all. If things are going too bad... (laughs) Night on the drink could turn things around. 
threaten to get on the drink, encourage them to get on the drink, whatever it is, as long as there's getting on the drink involved. It's yeah. rugby league. So the way he got this team going didn't go unnoticed. So Economides said that Ken Arthurson had come up to him to talk about his coaching. And Economides said, Ken told me Fulton reckoned they were lucky to beat us and the Chargers were very well coached. That means a lot to me. And he went on to win the coach of the year, uh, an award that was presented by Jack Gibson. And just no figure in rugby league history has Gibson's ability to just drill to the heart of the matter with just a laconic one-line, really succinct statement. He's the most concise man in history. Yeah, So uh, he was on stage to present the award and said, if his club had had money, he wouldn't have got the job and then read out Economides' name. (laughs) He's also very deflating of them. (laughs) Well, this is the funny thing when I think about Economides. Like with coaches, there's an idea that different coaches are suited for different uh, team environments. Like when Michael Maguire went to the Tigers, I remember hearing a view at the time that he wasn't a rebuild coach kind of coach and that's how it ultimately turned out to prove so I wonder if there's something like that in the opposite that some coaches are just built for a backs against the wall no one believes in us yeah we don't have any fancy players but we'll give them a game and and we'll punch above our weight I'm sure that counts for something I think that's definitely true but I don't think that applies to Economides I think if you put him at Manly I think he would have done a great job too Mm. I think just being able to talk to people and manage people like you obviously could yeah. is like hen's teeth. So. And I think the miracle of what Economides was able to do is just the fact that it was beyond a basket case what he was dealing with and what he had been dealing with in the entirety of his association with the club. So his comment on his time at the Gold Coast uh, reported by Tony Durkin in the Rugby League Week. At the end of each of my years here, there's been doubts about the future of the Gold Coast, and many of our promising players have moved on to what they consider a brighter and more secure future, and no one can blame them for that. But the sad thing is that in the 10 years since the club was formed, the situation has not changed, and at this point in time, the future of the club is probably as unstable as it ever has been. No one seems to know what's happening, and no one's prepared to give us an answer. Just the fact that you're able to swim against that, and every year you've got a new squad because players leave because they know there's no future there. So every year you're having to start again with a team that isn't good enough. Like to be able to turn that around like he did, it's an amazing achievement. And to do it all with affability. Yeah. So he managed to tap into that backs to the wall mentality for 1997. But similar to Tommy Radonikus pouring ox hearts onto the dressing room floor, it probably wasn't something that was going to be sustainable. Like any magical run, you kind of get one chance at it. So it fell apart in 1998. By his own admission, he thought he lost his way with the pressure of trying to compete, the pressure of the future of the Chargers, losing more players. And so he resigned midway through the year in 1998, which would end up being the Gold Coast last year in the competition. And it would also be his last experience of top grade coaching. That's crazy. It's one of those mysteries. So we heard about him being considered for South and turning it down because they were, you know, too unstable for the coach of the Gold Coast. He interviewed for Leeds. I assume this would have been at the same time that Graham Murray was ultimately appointed. And from there, he basically went on and was somewhat of a bush country journeyman, coaching in Mwilumbar, Byron Bay, Cudgeon. He coached the Fijian national team for a while. 
uh, and then headed over to Lou's, coached there for a couple of years and then down to South Logan. It's just strange that he could never get another opportunity. If you think of all the disastrous coaching appointments over the years yeah, and no one could find a spot for him, it's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. I know. It's so weird. Um, ended up leaving coaching to go work in the mines and I love his comment on this. I loved it. Working 21 days on and seven days off and plenty of blokes to talk footy with. How cool a comment's that? Yeah. You get these rugby league assholes that retire and never want to have a chat about the game. Again, yeah, yeah, their, yeah. It's their only defining personality trait. Yeah. And then uh, you got this guy who's just loving it, you know? Yeah. So, so much respect for Phil Economides and what he was able to do. But the story of the Gold Coast in 1997 goes beyond Economides. As we said, I won't call them a bunch of wogs, but there was an international flavour to the team. Highlighted with the emergence of Marcus Bai, who got his first grade start with the Gold Coast in 97. Do you remember how amazing it was that there was Kummels playing in the Australia yeah. at that point? Yeah, yeah. Now it's just an untapped resource of um, yep. constant good players. Or tapped resource, sorry. Yeah, he was a real pioneer in that sense. And he was very grateful to what Phil Economides was able to do for him. When he made it to the rest of the world game, he ended up giving his jersey as a thank you to Economides. That's so good. And set himself up for a fine rugby league career, you know, after 1997, starring with the Melbourne Storm. There are also some origin reps for the Chargers in 1997 with Jeremy Schloss and Jamie Goddard both making the Queensland team. And I love Economides' comment on this. I feel as proud as a dad whose kids have just graduated. I'm particularly pleased with Jamie and Jeremy. They set their goals at the start of the season and have worked very hard for this reward. It's a great result. He sounds like a dream coach, doesn't he? Mm. And it talks about how it, the selection gave everyone in the club a huge lift. It was a bit of a different story after Origin when you see the impact that losing your players for extended periods of time can have when you're a struggling team. So... Jeremy Schloss, in terminology that would turn out to be unfortunate given what would happen a couple of years later, uh, Phil Economides said he returned to Gold Coast after Origin, slightly soiled goods. <laughs> now, we talked about how um, unfair the poor carriage label is and all that in the past. I think this is actually, I mean, it's absolutely hilarious and um, undeniably funny, but now that this guy's name's associated with that for the rest of time, I think it's really unfair on him. It so is. And I understand that we're perpetuating it by talking about it again. But this bloke played Origin for Queensland and his football epitaph is Julian O'Neill shitting in his shoe. Well, it sucks. Maybe we should be the ones to retire the slotty shoe trope. All right. We'll do it right after now then, but we have to check. <laughs> I mean, to the hypocrisy. This, that's why this podcast speaks to regular people because of our innate hypocrisy, yeah. which is what the game's based on. Um, yeah, but you're right. It's totally unfair to his legacy, but I guess it is what it is. Jamie Goddard ended up, as we talked about, getting suspended for his fight with Andrew Johns. And Phil Economides was livid about losing his best player for so long. He said, I'd like someone to tell me that this isn't grossly unfair in our club. Having Jamie and Jeremy miss three games during the Origin campaign was bad enough. But to me, this seems totally unfair. Jamie was found guilty of a misdemeanor during the Origin game, yet this club suffers. By misdemeanor, you mean violent assault? Is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> On the flip side of Jeremy Schloss, one thing's made this guy's life, is beating the shit out of Andrew Johns. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're so right. It is the flip side. He probably fields a call every Origin series about that incident. He'll never be forgotten in rugby league because of it. I'd suggest he hears it every day of his life. Oh, yeah, totally. Also in the team was a former Queensland Origin rep in Martin Bella, who was playing his last season in the competition and showing no signs of losing the prickliness that had characterised his attitude to the press and other players throughout his career. Uh, After one match, he won the 2GB Man of the Match award and then decided to brush the customary post-match interview to which caller (laughs) Andrew Moore said, Martin Bell would have to be the rudest man in rugby league. At least he won't be around for too much longer. (laughs) Now, I used to hate, love to hate him as a Blues supporter, obviously. But looking back on him, I really miss those guys. He's a genuine villain, a, a rugby league wrestling heel. Yeah, yeah. A bloke who genuinely didn't give a shit what anybody thought about him. There hasn't been a decent one for 15 years at least. Yeah. Between him and then, I wouldn't think there'd be many either. He's just a classic bloke. Yeah. So in this Daily Telegraph article, didn't have a byline, so I don't know who wrote it. But uh, in the aftermath of that Andrew Moore snubbing, the article said, the retirement of Martin, Mr. Personality Bella, will not be widely lamented. <laughs> he Episodes must have hated like- journos, which is fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But then he could also use them to his advantage or to push his own agenda at times. So David Page, writing in the Rugby League Week, wrote that when we talk about the Super League War and all the player grumbling about you know officials getting looked after and them not, I think it really says something. So Page wrote, On tour, it was common for Bella to buttonhole a reporter and encourage him to expose a certain official. It seemed that whenever a bee slipped under his bonnet, there was no way you could shift it. Get a copy of his hotel bill, he would suggest to reporters. Publish how expensive all the bottles of red are that they're hosing down. (laughs) Hosing down. (laughs) I can just picture the vindictiveness with that moustache, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Love Martin Bella. Uh, The real success story on field for 1997 at the Chargers was Wes Patton, who'd arrived from the Tigers, a hot property on the field and off. So off the field, he had a guest spot in Home and Away. He was in movies. There was just a real buzz about Wes Patton. He's one of those guys that deserves a medal for even playing the game at his weight. Yeah. which just blows me away how tough you got to be to be that small and play first-grade rugby league. Yeah. And also, it was just so exciting, so fast, and I was a fan of him when he came out, that's for sure. Yeah, totally. And the move probably came at a right time because at the Tigers, he had the feeling that Wayne Pierce was trying to turn him into something he wasn't, that Wayne Pierce wanted this structure and they weren't really gelling as a coach and player combination because Wes Patton wasn't playing his natural game. I don't want to quote Andrew Johns's um, lamented phrase, but you've got to let him use his natural flair. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that Phil Economides recognised. Of Patton, he said, my theory is that we need Wes for the player he is, not the player we want him to be. Would you suggest that he plays what's in front of him? Or- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you suggest he holds the ball in two hands? Yeah. So no shackle application from Economides <laughs> to Wes Patton. <laughs> I tell you, the only coach worse than Junior would have been Walk. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to turn you into a front rower. <laughs> so a good season, but, uh, you know, perhaps inconsistent at times from Wes Patton. But this was basically as good as it got for his career. Off-field troubles in the years ahead, 
drifted from club to club. In Paul Broughton's book, he talks glowingly about Wes Patton and more Wes Patton as a person and the way they get on. And quite a philosophical statement. He said, Wes could have been a great player. He just loved life more. You've got to walk a mile in a bloke's shoes, that's for sure, to yeah. pass judgment. So, so I wish it went another way, that's all. I wish yeah. he had a great long career and happy off the field. But yeah, electric form in 1997 for Wes Patton. That was a big contributing factor into the success that the Chargers were able to achieve. I mentioned Phil Economides shaving off his mo. That happened when for only the second time in their history and the first time since 1989, the Chargers managed to win three games in a row. And over the course of that season, they had some like really good wins. So both grand finalists... Uh, fell victim to the Chargers and in big losses as well. So they beat Newcastle at one stage. They were leading 32-6. to six. They smashed Manly in August. And that win, which was punctuated by a try to Scott Sattler, saw Sattler uh, show some uncharacteristic, lairish behaviour running over for the try and doing an unnecessary dive over the line. Did it earn the ire of the opposition? Uh didn't earn the ire of the opposition so much, but he was worried about earning the ire of his father <laughs> of the dive. He said that he cringed, not so much because I probably looked like a bit of a goose, but because of what dad would say. I mean, notoriously anti-lair. <laughs> <laughs> but after some good-natured ribbing and telling Scott that he had to be kidding, uh, John Sattler said, anyone who scores a try against Manly can do whatever they like in my book. <laughs> They're the bastards that broke his job. <laughs> <laughs> but that win came in the midst of some late season struggles. So they faded quite dramatically towards the end and finals were looking very unlikely. So as he got into the last week of the competition, it was already being talked about as a success story, whatever happened from here. They got the most wins in a season in the club history and maybe that was feeding into the players' minds when they played their last match against Illawarra with a place in the finals on the line uh, and got smashed 28-6. to So that looked like it was all going to be over. Uh, at the same time, just before this game, it was announced that the Chargers and the Crushers were going to be merging in 1998. And maybe with this on their minds, the Crushers actually managed to lift and do the Chargers a solid. So in their last ever game, they beat West, which knocked West out of the finals and put the Chargers in. And so they were on a collision course to take on the Steelers again the following week in week one of the finals to cap you know, a remarkable season in Gold Coast Rugby League history. I've got a theory that the two times you don't want to play a rugby league team is the week after the coach is sacked and in the last ever game for the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I actually looked it up because I was interested in that fact myself. I didn't go back to, you know, Glebe or Annandale, but looking at every team since Newtown uh, playing their last game, the only teams that recorded wins were Newtown, who beat Canberra 9-6, uh, Norths, who beat the Cowboys 28-18, and the Crushers, who beat West. So, right. you know, a rare feat to actually win in your last game. Uh, but, of course, that merger, the South Queensland Chargers, never came to be. Uh, but that is a story for another day. So we'll move on to the Chargers and ever so briefly talk about their semi-final opponents, the Steelers, who, to me, this is the opposite of the Chargers. You know, that was 
this like real spirited, unlikely performance that made you forget about the fact that it was half a comp. It made you forget about the fact that the Chargers made the finals having lost more games than they won. Forget about the fact that it was a seven-team finals series in a 12-team competition. Illawarra season was so middle of the road with no captivating storyline and only made the finals because of this weird anomaly of a system in this weird anomaly of a season. It's the exact argument against the you know ridiculousness of the final series. <laughs> that sounds like Illawarra as a place. Yeah. <laughs> Just this substandard Newcastle impersonator. Yes. <laughs> so we talked about the Mary contract drama. There's actually not a lot other than that to say about the Steelers. I guess the most captivating storyline is the playing talent that was emerging. So Sean Timmons was coming on and I winced when I read this. Sean Timmons has earned a reputation as something of an Iron Man at Illawarra due to his <laughs> durability. <laughs> that sucks. God, he had some bad luck, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, you had Craig Smith, who was well on the way to becoming a uh, really top prop in the game. He had a really great season. Then you had Trent Barrett player. emerging and making origin. Am I the only one that's um, still to this day thinks that he's the most overrated player in the history of the game? No, I, I've obviously got a lot of thoughts about Trent Barrett. And my assessment of him is, yeah, I think he is overrated because I thought he always played really well for New South Wales. It always frustrated me seeing him carve up in origin and then come back to the Dragons and underwhelm. And I think the key to understanding Trent Barrett is that he wasn't a player you could hand the keys to. That's what I mean. He came into the comp as a swashbuckling, line-breaking, running type. Yeah. And then he didn't sort of go on with that. And then he became a playmaker who didn't have much playmaking skills, didn't go on with that, didn't have the killer instinct to win, didn't really win. I mean, a good-looking guy, I'll give him that. But um, Yeah, that's the thing. I think a lot of it is not really his fault because he was like such a great running 5'8". And then... You know, the early merger era, he's got Mundine there and that 1999 season, he was really good. And then after that, you know, Mundine goes, we're in the Willie Peters, Brett Furman era, and suddenly Trent Barrett is asked to play a role that's not suited for him at the same time that he's getting all this adulation, the face of the game, etc. And I think at heart, neither of those were roles he was suited for. But that's the thing, he came in as an ex-Laurie Daly and then he was shaped as an ex-Ricky Stewart and he was neither. Yeah. He was in between both. It wasn't yeah. a terrible player by any means, but I don't know if it's just my um, bias or what, but I always felt he was so overrated. Yeah, I mean, I, I think put him in a team with a really strong dominant halfback and it's a completely different career for Trent Barrett. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what the listeners think of that. Yeah. Um, Barrett's uh, career views. But so Barrett's teammate, Scott Cram, actually won the Rookie of the Year award that year, uh, emerging as a strong front rower there at Illawarra. By his own admission, he only got the award because Trent Barrett had got suspended during the season and was ineligible for the award. But either way, there was a sense of a pool of juniors developing that could propel Illawarra to success in the future. Um, in the end, they became the nucleus of a pretty decent St. George Illawarra team at the turn of the century. But again, that's a story for another day. Coming in fifth place was the Roosters, who in Gus's third year at the club, it was all starting to come together for them. Part of that was working out the best balance of the team. And 
Really interesting is this season as a pivot point for Brad Fittler. So in 1997, 10 of the first 16 games of the year, he played lock. Uh, in those other six games, he played halfback, center, 5 eighth. And as late as 1997, he thought of himself as a lock first. He was talking about Adam Hayden being injured and unable to play. And Freddie said, that may result in me playing 5 eighth. I'd prefer lock, but I'm not really fast. I always thought he was the greatest lock ever and you know, he should be a lock for life. And it shows what a bad judge of football I am. Apologies to Trent Barrett. The 5 eighth move was genius. It extended his career. He was amazing at it. Yeah. He won comps at it. He actually became a playmaker in a great kicking game as well. It's incredible. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it definitely brought it all together for him. If you look at his career from 1989 to 1997, he played 32 games at 5 8 67 games at lock, 40 games at centre, uh, 22 other games, either bench, fullback, front row, halfback. It's quite remarkable that he was able to be such a good player as he was, you know, winning Dally M Awards in three different positions, playing for Australia, playing for New South Wales, like not really having a settled position, but being able to excel anywhere he was put in. That's that winner gene that I yep. can observe and have never experienced myself. <laughs> He's just one of those guys that gets it done, right? Yeah, yeah. And so 1997 was the pivot point because for the rest of his career, he played 170 games at 5'8". He played four games at lock and one off the bench. So basically from 1998 to 2004, he's a pure 5'8", and that's how everyone remembers him. But for you know half of his career, that was a very different story. I reckon he would have carved up as a lock as well, but he probably would have been um, more damaged to the body, right? So we wouldn't have enjoyed those later years yep. where he was just the statesman of the game at one point. Uh, but to turn him into a... 5-8 full-time, which is where he ended the 1997 season. It required a change in philosophy about another player in that team, the player who was the Roosters' nominal 5-8 in Andrew Walker. So in round 16, Phil Gould moved him to fullback, which was just an instant revelation. I always thought it was weird when they moved halves to fullbacks back in the day, but it's much more commonplace in modern times. Well, I think Gus was really ahead of his time in making this move. It was using Walker at fullback in a way that not many other teams at the time were doing. And not only, you know, allowing him that roving commission and popping in all over the place, but actually using him still as a half with his huge bombs. Um, this was Matt Burton before Matt Burton, and it doesn't really get talked about how dangerous Walker's bombs were in 1997. They're like aliens back then. you never seen anything like it. Yeah. The, um, Gus had the Brandy halfback fullback thing to draw on. Yeah. So it wasn't totally new ground for him. No, um, but worked out a lot better than Brandy at fullback and unleashed Walker in a way that hadn't been done before. And I think a key to that is also understanding how to get the best out of players, which Phil Gould was an expert at. So at halftime in one game, Walker had had a pretty quiet half and hadn't played very well. But instead of berating him, Gus came in and said, in Walker's assessment, he said, I've won more games for us than I've lost and that everyone has an off day. He was on my side and that gave me a lot of confidence. It's just knowing how different players will respond. So some players... <laughs> You know, it is a case of going in and shouting abuse at them to get them to turn around. In some players, it, it requires a different strategy. And I think Phil Gould knew that and did that very well. Do you think Gus would have knocked on the door and said, sorry, girls, I thought the Roosters were here. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've got to say, for one of the most negative blokes that have ever drawn breath, Gus, he's never said anything but effusive, positive praise about Andrew Walker. This was his comment on Walker in 1997. He's a special talent, potentially as good as a player as I've ever coached or seen. He just has so many special gifts. I think we've found the right position for him at fullback, and Andrew was certainly enjoying it there. There are a lot of very good fullbacks playing the game, but right now we wouldn't swap him for any of them. Another one of those what-if careers, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a shame, but a very good career for the years we had him. His positional switch was bad news for Ivan Cleary, who for the third club in the row, he was an established fullback and got moved out of position for another player. So it happened to him at Manly with Matthew Ridge. It happened to him with Matt Sears at North. And now it was happening again. And and I think it was at our Patreon catch-up recently where we were talking about Ivan Cleary and the fact that he was such a you know smart, good player, but it really took him to the Warriors to really get the most out of his career. So this move from Andrew Walker, again pushing him out of position into the centres, was maybe the catalyst for him making that move and enjoying a good end to his career. Well, it shows what a good bloke Cleary is that he didn't let it get him down and he went on with it when he got a, a short mm. clear run. It, yeah. He had worse luck than Jason Deeth. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, but I mentioned Andrew Walker's move to fullback being the spark for the Roosters' season, and that is because they were really struggling in the early part of the season. So they were sitting outside the top seven after 16 rounds with a combination of losses losses and the origin period. They actually went 10 weeks without a victory. They lost their first game with Walker at fullback, but then from then on went on an eight-game run before you know losing in the preliminary final. So it really turned their season around making that positional switch. I wonder what it would have been like in today's game. I think it would have been um, a really great fullback in today's game when it's even more important. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, Gus, ahead of his time on that one. Ahead of his time on a lot of coaching things. Uh, let's turn to the Bears, who it was a mixed season for them, capped with uh, Greg Florimo Day at North Sydney Oval to celebrate his 250th game. In typical Bears fashion, this actually took place a few weeks after his 250th game, which I was like, <laughs> why wouldn't you actually have Florimo Day on the day of his 250th? I think they must have just forgotten. <laughs> like, you just answered it with typical yeah. bears. <laughs> so Flow Day involved a big carnival with attractions for the kids and a chance to celebrate uh, the Bears' greatest ever player. In typical Bears fashion, Flow Day ended with Florimo leaving the field on a stretcher after being concussed. <laughs> Bloody hell. And the worst part of it was that his actual 250th game had taken part a few weeks before at North Sydney Oval against Manly with North smashing Manly 41-8 to and Florimo earning a Rugby League week 10 out of 10. Only the Amazing, third, yeah. Only the third player of the decade after Bradley Clyde and Brad Fittler to get a Rugby League week 10. That makes me wonder if Flo knew it was his 250th. Yeah, yeah. So that win was a big day for the Bears team and a big day for Bears fans. Mark Soden, when talking about it, he was asked uh, what his most memorable moment of his life was, and he said, there's three. Playing Australian schoolboys because it was the first major goal I realised. The birth of my three kids and beating Manly 41-8 to eight two weeks ago. Imagine <laughs> his kids reading that. <laughs> well, it was a club game victory. Uh, yeah. 
I think the fact that it had this outsized importance to the Bears is part of the problem. Like, great win, but it's essentially a regular season game in June. I'm sure Manly can console themselves with their many premierships. Yeah, yeah. But all this came in the midst of merger rumours with Manly, which just very prescient from Flo. This was his statement. I know how important it is that a merger never happens. I just want to stay with Norths, even if they aren't in the premier competition. Loyalty to a fault. Well, yeah, like I read that and I wonder if there was some curse invoked that has consigned him to a career of staying with the Bears at all costs and pushing the barrow at every chance he gets for a return. But as I said, a mixed season on field. So that Manly win, they had a big win over Newcastle. They beat Newcastle twice that year and two wins against the Chargers, but didn't beat a top seven team outside of that and struggled for rhythm all year. But the big story about Norths in 1997 goes back to what we were saying about you know racism in this particular era. And that was a uh, incident involving Chris Caruana, who racially abused Owen Craigie in a match against Newcastle. And in an era where this often went unreported or was glossed over, Owen Craigie made a report, Newcastle got behind him, and it became an actual incident. So Caruana was fined and dropped, and it led to like a lot of back and forth in the press about, I guess the common phrase you'd hear in this era was, what happens on the field stays on the field. Yeah, it was a bit of a turning point, right? A player who always came out kind of agreeing with that argument was Arthur Beetson, who always just, you know, never said anything about it and kept everything on the field. And that was often used as a defense of it, you know, like, oh, look at Artie Beetson, he copped and didn't say anything, as if everyone just needs to be like Arthur Beetson and accept it. And I think back to Arthur Beetson's teammate in that Tigers team in the late 60s, Kevin Yowie, who came down to Sydney at a similar time as Beetson. Beetson was like this affable bloke who could, you know, laugh off anything he copped and move on. Whereas Kevin Yowie got, you know, deeply affected by it, which impacted on his mental health and his career on the field would have tragic consequences for the rest of his life. But there's just this attitude and perpetuating into the 90s and probably beyond that, oh, yeah, it happens on the field. Artie Beetson could cop it. You know, let's just play the game and move on. I've got to say, when I was a younger fellow when, and they came out in the media, I'd be like, oh, what whinges, it's just, just on the field, heat of the moment. But looking back on it now, they were actually brave blokes for coming out because people were against them. Yeah, yeah. There was every chance you were just going to be left out on your own if you did say anything. So I've got yeah. so much respect for Owen Craigie, who was a player in like, I think he was, you know, 19 or so in 1997, like really young player coming out and saying, no, I'm not going to accept that and making a stand. And we'd see a few incidents over the next few years. Anthony Mundine, who actually came out in support of Owen Craigie, he, you know, had a famous incident a couple of years later where, you know, he didn't back down on it as well. And it's just obviously like we've got a way to go still, but any incident now, which tends to typically come from fan abuse rather than another player, you do see, you know, the players kind of closing in together and and the game has hopefully made some steps forward in that regard. But embarrassing for Norths, like they find Caruana, make a big show of dropping him. Then during the week, Ben Eichen does his hamstring. Chris Caruana comes straight back into the starting squad. <laughs> it's a rugby league, right? Yeah. 
we're gonna make a show of this and make sure that you know he learns his lesson. But you know, bloke's got injured. I mean. So we'll move on from Norse to talk about the Parramatta Eels, the $9 million men, as they were dubbed in the press. And after underwhelming in 1996, after their big players splurged for that year, the Eels had a lot to prove and they had a lot of work to do to avoid the tag of being overpaid and overrated. I really hate both areas of Eels buying a comp sides. They were at pains to say that the $9 million figure was a myth you know, they'd basically replaced their whole squad over a period of two years. So looking at the 1995 squad, Troy Campbell and Justin Morgan were the only players there in 95 that played any meaningful first grade in 1997. So it was a complete wipeout of a squad. Dennis Fitzgerald said the wage bill was more like $5 million, which included reserve grade. So that was a bit of a myth, but at the same time, they had to justify it and Brian Smith when they struggled early talking about the side needing to be totally rebuilt well that just wasn't going to cut it with the Parramatta fans and with the rugby league public more generally that if you're spending all this money you need to get a result but what's remarkable to me about that squad is that for a team so touted in the press it was so incomplete like if you look at their back line you got the likes of David Riolo, Ian Heron, Nathan Barnes, David Wood, Shane Werrett, like a complete lack of X factor. I really think it was just buying sort of name plays and swishing them together. Yep. Just buy names and put them on paper and they'll be fine. Yeah, and it was like any player who signed with the ARL but plays for a Super League club will take. Not enough thought maybe into where they needed players and the type of players they were bringing in. So there was a lot of unrest among the fans early in the season when they were struggling, had a five-week losing streak at one point and midway through the season were in 11th spot. The last of the losses in that streak involved the infamous M&M's jersey where they were paid 75 grand from M&M's to wear a special like powder blue, I guess you'd call it, uh, uniform. Really terrible look. The same weekend that Carlton in the AFL had been paid to wear a similar jersey, Carlton actually got paid $200,000 for wearing it, so Parramatta sold themselves out cheap. And I think it was in a similar era that the AFL player renamed himself Whiskers after being sponsored by the cat food brand for a game. So it was a real (laughs) strange era for um, sports marketing in Australia, one that I'm glad didn't catch on. (laughs) But Parramatta eventually did turn it around. So after that losing streak, they went on a 10-match winning streak. Over the course of that 10 weeks, they beat all other semi-finalists. And it ended up being the first time since 1986 that they won more than four in a row. And by the end of the year, they were going well. The big guns were firing. Jared McCracken had made the switch to the second row and, in fact, would never play at centre again in his first-grade career. So he was entering a different phase of his career, but they managed to turn the season around. Uh, And although they didn't win the competition that year, there was promise for the future ahead. And that was going to be capped by the immense amount of knowledge that Brian Smith was going to gather by going over to the United States to learn (laughs) from NFL and NBA clubs. (laughs) which I think we've characterized in the past as the biggest racket in the game. 
<laughs> and um, how many US based fact finding missions has he been on today? <laughs> well, well uh, Brian Smith can tell you that. He said, This will be my fifth trip, and I've learned heaps. There's not a lot of relation between the skills and tactics in our games, but you pick up a lot of other things. <laughs> the club picks up the tab, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I just love it. Like the coaches just, you know, using any excuse for a junket and the club's going along with it. Like good on Brian Smith, I say. He's been there, what, five trips in 97. So 20 years later, how many has he done? Yeah. He <laughs> must now, have been I, to every NFL team's facilities. I can't uh, let this segment go without bringing up the analogy that you put in your notes. So you wrote, Brian Smith has found more facts in the US than Norris McWhorter. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, I mean, you talk about deep cuts. Uh, if everyone listening is like me, and I assume 99% of people are, uh, Norris McWhorter, I had to go to Wikipedia for this, him and his twin brother Ross, the founders of the Guinness Book of Records. We see why I didn't bring it up. <laughs> I, the, um, I just love that was a name you could just, you know, like reel off. I was a big Guinness Book of Records fan as a boy. <laughs> I wonder yeah. who was there in the entry for most cash burnt on meaningless fact-finding missions <laughs> to the US. I'm just picturing rocking up to the Patriots' uh, home ground and they're like, oh, g'day, bro. Like he's a regular. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it must be October, is it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we'll go to the last team that we're going to talk about in this episode, which is Manly. So the Knights, as I mentioned before, they get their own chapter. The minor premiers, uh, once again, were Manly, who were as hated as ever with Ken Arthurson saying there was a bit of a St. George syndrome with them going back to the Dragons era of the 50s and 60s. But in Arthurson's assessment, uh, he thought that Manly were a little more acceptable he said, a lot of people admire the fact that they stood solid when everyone knew they were prime targets, which I got to say, uh, that is wildly out of step with my memory of how Manly were viewed to the public, <laughs> regardless of the Super League war. So this Manly team were quite an easy team to dislike. And I think Norm Tasker gets to the heart of the matter in the Rugby League week. So I'll just read this. The end result is a snarly club. The coach gives them sanction in that their problems are never their own. Easy to blame a referee or some other external force. The players let their frustration show in other ways. They react to tackles as if the tackler has no right to impede them. They push and shove and niggle. They give an outward appearance of being abusive. And then there is John Hopoati. Manly would do better to treat opponents with respect. They would do better to look at their own game before blaming everybody else. Which I love that John Hopoati just, you know, doesn't need to be expanded upon. It's like, yeah, they do all this and they've got John Hopoati. <laughs> Um, Rex Mossop's comment on Hopawati's head padding was, I wince when I see him do it. It's an inward expression of disgust. <laughs> I like how he gives the definition for wincing. <laughs> but that also reminds me of his um, comment after the bum poking situation. Yes. What's wrong with the bastard? <laughs> uh, Noel Kelly was wondering the same thing. He said, I often wonder whether John Hopawati is a rat or a good player because of the way he carries on. I put him in the same class as the leader of this um, team's identity, Terry Hill. Yeah. Both of them on the field were absolute guns and they used that niggle like it was a fitless sidestep. It's that bigger weapon. Yeah. Uh, but by this stage, I think 
John Hopawadi had really gotten on the nerves of other players. There was one match against St. George where Hopawadi called Mark Bell a spastic, which, uh, you know, <laughs> thankfully a slur that has gone out of common use. But uh, Mark Bell's response to that was, the game doesn't need players like him. His behavior is disgraceful and all the St. George boys are sick of it. But you mentioned Terry Hill. Hopawadi was just like one player that carried this attitude into games and maybe no one else was as loose a unit as he was. But there was a feeling that Manly were towing the line when it came to the way they were treating other teams and referees in particular. I think this comment from Mark Carroll, you know, says a lot to me. I'm not one for ref bashing, but I think players need to communicate with them. And I think it has to go both ways. As long as the ref talks to me with respect, I'll talk back to him the same way. Which like, yes, referees should treat players with respect. And the ones that don't won't last too long in the game. But there's no as long as, as a player, you have to show respect to the ref. That's non-negotiable. The players need to show respect to the refs. And there was a lot of sense that at Manly, you know, the fish rots from the head and it was Bozo and the way he approached referees and the comments he made in the press were festering this culture within the team that fed down to his captain in particular. So Jeff Toovey was singled out for a lot of criticism for his back chat to the refs that year. And then there was talk that this had actually harmed his prospects for, say, the Rothmans medal over the years, which was decided by refs. Like he never polled very highly in that award once he was made manly captain because maybe the refs were sick of him talking to them. It's so funny that the refs had the um, yeah. vote. So when you think about it, it was a real clean skin award at one point, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but all this was happening as there was a bit of an on-field decline to Manly in 1997. They weren't the dominant force they'd been over the two seasons previous. They lost a lot of good players, headed by Matthew Ridge, but also Owen Cunningham, Solomon Hamono, Jack Ellsgood, Des Hasler. And there was a view that the replacements, such as Craig Field, had somewhat underwhelmed. Rex Mossop again in the press was quite uh, annoyed by how they were playing. And I love this, just this like old school corner of knowledge, talking about how he was talking about Manly with Roy Ball and Gordon Willoughby, you know, like Rex to Manly legends of the 50s. I discussed the situation with Roy and Gordon the morning after the Norths game, and their thinking is much the same to mine. A few of us are very concerned. It will take an enormous turnaround in attitude and skill for Manly to stay in premiership contention. I really miss hearing those words. Rex must have been the media says. Yeah, yeah, I, like, I, I know. What a great time to be alert. Yeah. Uh, he predictably wasn't as popular within the Manly dressing room, apparently getting the tag Neville Dinosaur by some of the players <laughs> in the team. <laughs> um, but a lot of Manly's regression in 97 probably came down to their defence not being as tight. So... The 1996 Manly team has to go down as one of the best defensive sides as all time. I think we talked about them in our recap episode for 1996. They conceded 1.35 tries a game in 1996, 34 tries over the regular season that year. They conceded 34 tries after 13 rounds in 1997. So they weren't the dominant force they were, which brought them back to the field. Uh, but they did get it together for the end of the year, went on a 6-2 and two run, their last eight regular season games, and held on to the minor premiership. 
and went into the finals as obvious favourites, regardless of any early season blips. And that is where we leave this episode. So we're going to be talking all about the finals in part three, a lot more good storylines to come. And then that sets us up nicely for our Newcastle chapter, which, you know, I keep talking about, but I'm really pumped to finally get to that ARL Grand Final. So we've got a bit of ground to cover before then. So I hope you enjoyed this and tune in to the next episode for the 1997 ARL Finals. Toodaloo. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.